So grateful for those words by Horatio Spafford, especially the words we sang, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. What a great promise. And my heart's prayer for each and every one of us is that is a song that each one of us can sing here this morning. And we sit under the, the, the wonder of the glorious thought that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, every single ounce of your sin was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 12 this morning as we continue in our series on the parables of Jesus. As you do, I want to draw your attention to just a couple of items that are in your worship guide. There are a number of of, uh, announcements that are in there and things that have been on the screen today. Two in particular I want to let you know about. One, we're having a church faith family cookout tonight. Uh, We did this in June and had a, a time for us just to gather together as a church family and to fellowship around the table together. And so we will have hamburgers and hot dogs and various other things that will be available tonight. But we're also having part of that as a homemade ice cream fellowship. And so if you like homemade ice cream, and I don't know anybody in the state of Alabama that probably doesn't like homemade ice cream. If you like homemade ice cream, we're asking you to come tonight. Maybe you have a specialty that you make that you'd like to add to the mix, but we're going to be eating together and enjoying some different ice cream, and we'll be doing that in the Outback. That'll start about 5.30 this afternoon. And so maybe you don't know a whole lot of people at Central Park. It's a great opportunity for you just to gather together and get to know each other better. So please make plans to attend that tonight at 5.30. Also, on the back of your worship guide, you'll be hearing me speak a little bit more over the course of the next couple of weeks about the Sanford Ministry Training Institute. I have the the privilege of being the director of that uh, institute here in Morgan County and have taught with that for over four years. Uh, It's a great opportunity to get to know God's Word better. And so on the back of your worship guide, there's an announcement about a class that will be starting in August on the Minor Prophets. And so if you're interested in knowing God's Word a little bit better, you can check that out. It's an eight-week class. Um, one book that you have to read, and, and there's, a, there's a, some flyers that are available in the foyer as you, as you leave this morning. If you want a little bit more information about how to register or a little bit more about those classes, uh, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider being a part of that. This morning we're going to be looking at a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 called the parable of the rich fool. Now this is the eighth parable in this series that we've looked at so far of Jesus' parables. And all, there are about 49 parables. We're not going to look at all of them this time. We'll probably come back and do another series through the parables at some other time. But so far as we've looked through these, these parables, we've seen parables where Jesus talks about our receptivity to the Word of God. We've seen Jesus talk about the grace of God to everyone, no matter when you come into the kingdom. We've seen about the love of God towards those who are prodigals as well as those who are hypocrites. We've talked about parables about the cost of truly following Jesus and evaluating that cost. We've talked about recognizing that those who are saved are done so by the mercy of God and not our own personal moral goodness. And last week we saw a parable about those who have been shown mercy or called to be people of mercy and forgiveness. Today I want us to look at another parable about a very important topic that we need to look at as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's a parable about our attitude and relationship towards money and possessions 
and specifically about the ever-lurking spiritual parasites of greed and discontentment. Many of us read today's parable that we're going to look at in just a second and probably think that this is a parable that better applies probably to somebody else other than us. But the reality is that the warnings that Jesus gives us here in Luke chapter 12 are vitally important to every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now to set the context a little bit, this parable is taught by Jesus in response to a request from a man in the audience. Jesus was teaching on many different things, and as he was teaching, a person in the audience made a request of him. By this time in his ministry, Jesus is widely recognized as a wise rabbi and a good teacher there in the region of Galilee. He's gathered a crowd of of hundreds, even maybe thousands at some point in time, who've come not only to see his miracles, but to hear him teach. He teaches with great authority Many of the people said he doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. There's there's an authority behind what he says that's different. And so because of this, it would be very common for people in that day to gather around as a rabbi would teach. and, And while he would teach, they would ask him questions. Sometimes they would ask him questions about something he taught. Sometimes they would ask him questions about things that they were wondering. Sometimes they would ask a wise rabbi to to be an arbitrator in a a dispute. It would be not uncommon for someone to go to, to a person who was recognized as a spiritual authority and say, I have this issue and I need you to help me speak to this person about it. And that's what happens in this parable beginning in verse 13. I want us to read verses 13 through 15 and then give you a little background of that and then we'll read the parable. Verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus said to them, Take care. Now this is saying to everybody, not just to the man. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now let's stop there and and understand what's happening because that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying in the parable that follows and why he's saying it. The parable that he's about to tell is is an illustration of the warning that he gives in verse 15 when he says to be on guard in your life against covetousness and to understand that your life does not consist in the abundance or the lack of it of your possessions. This man interrupts Jesus' teaching to make a request that Jesus arbitrate a family dispute between him and his brother. He's grown impatient with his brother and probably grown impatient with Jesus' teaching because he just suddenly interrupts and makes this request of Jesus to help settle this dispute. Now from the context, it appears that this man's father has passed away and that the estate needed to be divided. This man is probably a younger brother, That only indicates two, it indicates him and another. He's probably the younger brother as the responsibility of dividing the estate would have fallen to the firstborn to make sure that that happened. And so here's the younger brother who who is saying, my father has died, I have a right to a share of this estate, and my brother has not done his responsibility to do so. Now, as the younger brother, he would be entitled to one-third. The, the, the firstborn would be entitled to a double portion of the estate. So the firstborn would get two-thirds, he would get one-third, and he's desiring for his brother to, to divide that. Now the text doesn't tell us why the older brother had not divided it yet. Perhaps he had been too busy grieving to do so. Perhaps 
He didn't quite trust his younger brother to manage the finances that were about to be given to him very well. We don't really know why. We're just left to speculate. But Jesus' response to the young man was clear. Immediately he says, Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? In other words, Jesus said that his purpose was not to settle domestic disputes or arbitrate cases. And while it would be common for other rabbis to step in and settle this dispute according to the law, it had been very easy for Jesus as a rabbi to say, the law says that you're entitled to one-third, your brother's entitled to two-thirds, and so therefore I demand that your brother do that. It would have been very easy for Jesus to do that, but Jesus wanted his people, his disciples, as well as us to understand that He was not here in order to be a a judge or an arbitrator. He didn't come to settle disputes according to the law. And he uses this man's question as an opportunity to, to teach the crowd and also his disciples a very important lesson about the human heart. He wants to point out that the problem in this situation is not... A a dispute between two brothers, but the problem in this situation is what's controlling this young man's heart. And he wants to warn his followers as well as the rest of us that you and I struggle with the very same problem. The problem with the human heart that Jesus is trying to address here is simply this. Now listen carefully. All of us have a tendency to measure our worth and our value by our possessions. And when we do, We have hearts that constantly desire for more. That's the warning that Jesus is trying to get across here. All of us have a tendency inside of us to measure our worth and our value in this world by what we own. And when we do, the temptation of the heart is to constantly desire more. This is why one of the Ten Commandments prohibits what is called coveting. What is coveting? Coveting is simply the act of focusing your attention on what someone else has that you don't in such a way that you strongly desire or covet what they have. Let me say that again. The act of focusing your attention on what someone else has that you do not in such a way that it creates a strong desire or a coveting to have what they have. It is an overwhelming focus on what you don't have over what you do have. And the problem with coveting is that it always leads to a heart that is marked by discontentment, that is marked by obsession over acquiring something you don't have, and that it is often marked by a heart that lacks personal peace. And so when Jesus warns this man, he basically says, I'm not going to judge this dispute. What I am going to do is ask you to look inside your heart and understand this, that you need to guard yourself against coveting, against desiring to have something you don't, and against measuring your life by the abundance of your possessions. And then he tells us the parable. So let's read the parable. Verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Before I read the next part of the parable, if we only stopped there, the reality is that 
95% of the people who live in the glorious United States of America would read that parable and say, what's wrong with that? We're going to talk about that in just a second. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. From a cursory reading of this parable, this is one of those parables that's a little bit harder to decipher for some readers. Because on the surface, it appears that as Jesus is telling this story, he's telling the story of a successful businessman and farmer who decides when he looks at at the harvest that he's gotten, he decides to make a good business decision which will increase his profit margin and lead to a more successful and financially independent life. And what could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with that? Would not most of us who were faced with this situation probably consider doing the exact same thing that he did? And don't most of us make many financial decisions using the same filter that this man does almost each and every day? What could be wrong with with having a good year and having more than what you expected come in and deciding to figure out a way to reinvest that in in your farm or in your business? What happens when a hard year's work leads to a well-earned and significant bonus at the end of the year? Or maybe the business that we lead turns a better-than-expected profit, and we're faced with the same question, what should we do? Shouldn't we enjoy the fruits of our labor? Shouldn't we treat ourselves to that shiny new car or that new boat for the family to enjoy? Is it wrong spiritually? when you have more than what's expected, to put it in the retirement account so that you can spend your retirement years in comfort? Is that wrong? Is Jesus condemning good business practices here? Is Jesus saying that you and I shouldn't plan to save for retirement? Is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. And let's be very clear. Jesus is not condemning the acquisition of wealth good investment strategies, or saving for retirement. He is not doing that at all in this parable. But what he is doing is exposing the sin of this rich fool's heart. And he's warning the crowd and the rest of us here that when it comes to money and possessions, we need to check our personal motivations that often drive the acquisition of wealth in our lives. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about money. Jesus said more about money and our attitudes towards it than almost any other topic. And the reason why is because Jesus knows that our attitude towards wealth and possessions is a window into the things that really control our hearts. Jesus said it clearer than anything else that that what, what reveals our hearts is how we respond towards money and possessions and the way it controls us. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 8.8 that God gives His people the power to make wealth. That the ability to make money and to save money and to acquire wealth for yourself is a gift from God. In 1 Timothy 6.17 it says that God richly provides us with everything in order for our enjoyment. We see in the Bible that God blessed many men in Scripture with the ability to acquire wealth. Men like Job and Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, Boaz and Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea. These were wealthy men that God had given them the ability to make money. 
And he'd given them the ability to make lots of money. So God does not condemn wealth. And God does not condemn the ability to make money. It is a gift from him. But what God does do in Scripture is warn us of the trappings of wealth and warn us about the attitudes that it can create in our lives. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That all kinds of evil things come out of an, of an unbridled love for money above everything else. Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or... Love the other, either you be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Proverbs 23 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle towards heaven. For some of you, that could be like the, 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 the scripture verse over your bank account, right? Every single time I put the check in the bank, it feels like it just sprouts wings and flies away like an eagle, right? That's what the way money is. So you shouldn't toil over acquiring it, and you need to be discerning enough to desist the constant lure of money. And so I want us to look at this parable, and I want us to see four things that the rich fool discovered that Jesus is trying to teach us here today so that we understand how to apply this to our life. What the rich fool discovered was... Really four lessons. Number one, beware of the idol of greed. Beware of the idol of greed. We see this when this guy comes and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It seems like a reasonable request, like we said a second ago. And it, it doesn't seem like it, it, it constitutes this response from Jesus. But remember this. Jesus knows this guy. He knows the question behind the question. He knows what's really driving this man, this young man. And that's why he says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's not my responsibility. And then he looks at him and everybody else and says, take care and be on your guard against covetousness or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here's the problem. Very few of us in here would consider ourselves as greedy people. The Bible says to us that in the church we are to confess our sins to one another. So how many of you would raise your hand today and say, you know what, Pastor, one of my biggest problems in life is I'm greedy. Anybody want to confess to that this morning? I didn't think so. Very few of us consider ourselves to be greedy people. When it comes to greed, we usually think that greed is another person's problem. And I've discovered that greed is almost impossible to see in the mirror. But truth be told, all of us in here struggle with some extent with a greedy and discontented heart. The reality is in a, in a very successful capitalistic society such as ours, the reality of it is, is that when we drive around and we see some people who have nicer cars than we do, or we see people who live in nicer houses than we do, or we see people who, who take their vacations to Maui while we struggle to take a couple of days off, it creates a sense of discontentment. A couple of weeks ago, I borrowed my in-law's car to drive to a family gathering. My mother-in-law offered it to us because it had a little bit more space in the back for us to be able to put the luggage and for us to be able to spread around. 
And so I was driving her car and I enjoyed the newness of her car. Matter of fact, I really enjoyed the large in-dash screen with all the bells and whistles that, that, that I, I had the navigation system and, and I could control all the stuff, all my podcasts from the screen. I really enjoyed that. And you know the problem? That the further I drove towards South Carolina, the more I found myself wanting a new car. I kept thinking, man, this is really a nice car. I even said to my wife, we need to talk your mother-in-law into selling this to us. I go out and play golf, and when I go out and play golf, the problem is that I want new golf clubs and actually rationalize to myself that if I could just get that new set of golf clubs, they would actually help me to play better. I go to Lowe's, and I go to Lowe's to pick up something. Like yesterday, I had to go to Lowe's to pick up one thing. The problem is I don't go to the aisle at Lowe's and pick up the one thing and go to the cash register and leave. I start rationalizing that I can walk up and down other aisles and what I do is I look at tools and go, man, that's really cool. I, I wish I had that, even though I have no idea how to use it and no place to put it in my garage. But I really want it. You know why? Because I have a greedy, discontented heart that constantly wants what I don't have. And if you think about it, you struggle with greed and you struggle with discontentment too. On the surface, this request from this guy seems completely fair. I'm entitled to my fair share. Tell my brother to do this for me. But Jesus says, you need to understand something, man. You need to be on guard against covetousness. You need to guard your heart. As a matter of fact, I would say that most of us in here should probably take a, a pen or a highlighter and, and underline verse 15 and probably write it somewhere where we can look at it every single day. It's a massively important verse for every person in this room. You need to memorize it and you need to say it to yourself every morning when you get in the mirror, before you get ready to head out for the day, you need to say the exact same thing to yourself that the Lord Jesus says here, and that is you need to be on guard against the covetousness of your heart because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Because each and every day, you and I go out into a world that says that you and I are not defined by who we are, but by what we have. And every day that we do, the idol of greed begins to wrap its cold tentacles around our hearts and eventually slowly squeeze all of the spiritual vitality out of us. And we begin to measure ourselves by the things that we don't have that others have when God never intended that for you. As a matter of fact... Jesus' response to the man in verse 15 really gives us the clue to the whole main point of the parable, and that is this. The idol of greed will consume your life, deteriorate your soul, and destroy your relationship with God and others. You need to be on guard against greed. You need to be on guard and beware of the idol of greed, because if you don't, the idol of greed will eventually consume your life. As it does, it will deteriorate your soul. It is impossible to look at the cross of Calvary and sing Jesus paid it all and continue to struggle with a greedy and discontented heart. It will deteriorate your soul and if you're not careful, it will eventually destroy your relationship with God and others. The problem is that the idol of greed looks at God and says, God, you owe me. You owe me. 
You're holding out on me. You owe me something that I'm entitled to have and you haven't allowed me to have. And because you haven't, I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. It was the idol of greed that prompted this man's request. It was the idol of greed which motivated the rich fool's decision. It was the idol of greed that caused the rich fool to never even acknowledge God at all in his business practices and his personal financial decisions. It was the idol of greed that motivated him to build bigger barns in order to store up his desire for more. And it was ultimately the idol of greed which destroyed his soul. We need to beware the idol of greed. But secondly, we need to beware the lie of self-sufficiency. We need to beware of the lie of self-sufficiency. Look again at the parable in verse 16. Jesus said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What? Shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Part of the problem with the rich fool in this parable is that he overestimated his own personal contribution to his financial status and overinflated his own self importance. And this is what happens sometimes in our relationship with money and possessions is that sometimes we overestimate our own personal contribution towards our wealth and we overinflate our own self-importance. Jesus is very careful in the ways that he says this. And look again at what he says in verse 16 when he says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Do you see that? Jesus does not say a rich man's hard work resulted in a bountiful crop. He does not say a rich farmer's agrarian strategy paid off considerably. Jesus intentionally starts the parable this way because he wants to point us to a massive truth that offsets the pervasive lie of (coughs) self-sufficiency. Certainly this man had used good strategies in his farming operation. But any farmer knows that a successful crop is totally dependent upon forces outside of his control. A farmer does not have control over the rain. A farmer does not have control over the insects. A farmer really didn't have any control in that time over the nutrients in the soil or the conditions of the soil. And in addition, while he had obviously some very successful strategies which resulted in a bountiful harvest, where did the farmer get the knowledge that helped him to be so successful to begin with? It was the grace of God that sent the rain. It was the grace of God that kept away the insects. It was the grace of God that provided the nutrients to the soil. And it was the grace of God that gave him the very knowledge that he had to be successful. But notice that in this man's words in verses 16 through 18, not one time does God ever show up in the equation. Why? Because he's bought into the lie of self-sufficiency. Notice how many times the word I and my are used in verses 16 through 19 at least 11 times. And what is missing is any reference whatsoever to God. And I would tell you this, beware in your life of the eyes and the mys. Beware in your life when you look at your checking account, when you look at your home, when you look at your business. Beware of saying, I, 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 and my, my, my. Because the life of self-sufficiency will tell you and me that any and everything we have in life is completely up to us. We do not need outside forces to to help us. We, We work, we earn it, and therefore we deserve it. 
And the lie of self-sufficiency will lie to you and blind you to this fact. That you are a created being in a world that you did not create. And that you do not make go round. And that everything, including your soul and the very salvation of your soul, ultimately comes from a God to whom you are accountable. Everything. There is no such thing as a self-sufficient person in this world. All of us are dependent upon the grace of God every single day. Beware the lie of self-sufficiency. But thirdly, beware the illusion of personal financial independence. Beware the illusion of personal financial independence. Look at verse 19. After he has this strategy to tear down his barns and build larger ones, he said, I will come to this point where I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What is he saying? He says, I'm going to come to this point where I'm going to say to myself, You are financially independent. Enjoy it. He wants to have ample goods laid up so that he can spend the rest of his days eating, drinking, and being merry. He sees his present windfall as a pathway to greater personal security and independence. He is the picture of the self-made wealthy man. And truth be told, if this didn't come out of the Bible and we simply put this in a case study and set it before most Christians in a Sunday school class, truth be told, this man's shrewdness would be applauded by many in the church today. Many of us would look at a person like this in our congregation and say, I tell you what, that guy's got it all together. He knows how to make money. He's successful. He's financially independent. That guy is the kind of guy I want to be. He would likely make the cover of Forbes magazine. He would be celebrated by many Christians today as a model of success because the issue at stake in this man's life is that he is under the illusion that financial independence is the primary goal in life. That's what he's saying here. I'm going to come to this point where I'm going to say to my soul, soul, you have everything you need. The real life is measured by the ability to reach a status where you and I can relax, count our money, and spend the bulk of our lives gratifying our sinful flesh with the chasing of indulgent foods and the illusion of happiness. That somehow or another, that's what life is all about. But let me ask you this. What if the real goal of financial independence wasn't to reach a point where you could just sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry? But what if the real goal of financial independence was so that you could, uh, or what if the real measure of a successful retirement wasn't a calendar devoted to fulfilling your personal indulgences, but was actually spending a significant number of years expanding the kingdom of God? What if the real measure of success in retirement was that you could do things that you otherwise couldn't do when you were tied to an employment? Maybe God's plan for you is that you would devote your retirement years to serving on a disaster relief team and demonstrate the gospel to those who are in suffering. This week, one of our church members is, is doing such in, in the Midwest and he's part of a team from Morgan County that is spending his retirement years investing in the lives of those who have been marked by disaster. Maybe God's plan for you is to use your financial independence to take your skills to a foreign land and leverage them for the expansion of the gospel. 
My friend Royce is a very successful businessman who is now spending his retirement years in Malaysia teaching business practices to, to men in Malaysia and using those as opportunities to teach the Bible. Maybe your goal in life shouldn't be how many golf courses you can play with your wealth, but maybe how many disciples you can make with your financial independence. The reality is that personal financial independence is an illusion. None of us ever reaches a status of independence. Every one of us are completely dependent upon God for everything we have, and just like this man, it can all be taken away in one night. And then, like the Lord said, what are you going to do then? Who's going to have the things that you've prepared for yourself then? Beware the idol of greed. Beware the lie of self-sufficiency. Beware the illusion of personal financial independence. And finally, be rich towards the kingdom of God. Be rich towards the kingdom of God. Jesus says, this is what happens to one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The biggest problem with this rich man's thoughts and words wasn't what was in them, but what wasn't in them. When faced with an abundant and unexpected uh, abundance, he did not ask, how can I better honor God who has provided all this for me? That question never entered his mind. He didn't look at the, at the overwhelming harvest and say, how can I honor God because of what he's given me? He didn't look around his world and say, what can I do to help my fellow man to alleviate some of the suffering around me? He didn't say, since I have such an abundance of crops, where can I feed the hungry? What can I sell at the market to help give and expand the kingdom of God? Jesus makes it clear in the end that our goal in life should never be to lay up treasure for ourselves, but to cultivate an attitude that is constantly being rich towards God. And this is why Jesus follows the parable with a warning not to spend our lives consumed by the acquisition of food and clothing, but to seek the kingdom of God and those things will be added to you. The principle that Jesus is teaching us is simply this. What you treasure most will control your heart, direct your choices, and ultimately determine your destiny. What you treasure most will control your heart. What you treasure most will direct the choices that you make in life, and what you treasure most will ultimately determine your destiny. This rich man is a case study of this principle. If you treasure most the treasures of this world, they will control your heart, create a pattern of discontentment and greed, direct your choices, and ultimately destroy your relationship with God. And so Jesus says, don't measure your life by what you can acquire, but by what you can give away to the kingdom. Don't measure your life and your worth by your balance in your 401k or the value of your house. Measure your worth and how you can use what God has given you to advance the kingdom and go and make disciples of all people. Measure your worth by that. You see, the antidote to the idol of greed is to be rich towards the things of God. The antidote to the idol of greed and the, the answer to the lie of self-sufficiency is to be rich towards the things of God because giving breaks the power of greed in our lives. Giving breaks the power of greed. This is why God put within our own system of worship a, a system to give back to Him through tithes and offerings. 
God required of his people from the very beginning that when you come to worship me, you are to give from the first fruits of your possession to give God first before you spend anything on yourself. It's to break that idol of greed that would wrap itself around our hearts. And being rich towards God does not only mean that we practice tithing, but it also means that we invest in mission causes that expand the gospel, that we use our finances to meet the needs of the less fortunate around us, that we leverage our lunch and our dinner times for gospel conversations. Let me challenge you with this. Instead of measuring your life by your acquisitions, measure your life by your eternal investments. And instead of spending your life taking an inventory of your possession, let us commit to taking an inventory of the disciples that we are investing in. Let us measure our lives by the things that really matter in the kingdom of God. Beware the idol of greed. Beware the lie of self-sufficiency. Beware the illusion of personal financial independence and be rich towards the kingdom of God. As Christians, we are rich towards God because we serve a Savior who modeled this for us. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of the cold, hard realities that this rich man discovered is that there comes a day when God looks down at each and every one of us and He will give a statement of accounting for our life. And that we cannot spend our lives measuring our lives by the things that don't matter only to come to the end of our lives and find out that God measures our value and our worth by a completely different set of accounting. There's going to come a time, just like this rich man, for each and every one of us that God's going to look down on us and He's going to say, it's time for you to do business with me. And at that point in time, it's not going to matter what kind of car you drove. It's not going to matter what, what you did for a living. It's not going to matter how much money you made. It's not even going to matter how much you attend to church. All that's going to matter is, is your soul well with God, like we sang a second ago. All that's going to matter is, is are you prepared to meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. We're going to give you an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because as I said a second ago, there's going to come a day in our life to which all of us personally will stand before a holy God. And in that day, it's not going to matter whether your daddy was a deacon in a church. It's not going to matter whether your grandfather was a preacher. It's not going to matter how many times your mama taught you, brought you to Sunday school. It's not going to matter how, how good of a person you were. The only thing that's going to matter is if you surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And so in just a moment, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. As we sing this song, we want you, if the Lord is speaking to you today, and you say, you know what, Pastor Matt, I need to give my heart to Jesus. I, I want to be rich towards the things of God, and that begins with a heart change. And, and so I'm ready to trust my heart to Christ and I'm ready to be forgiven and be changed and be a new person. Just a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe you're not ready to walk down in front of a bunch of people, and that's fine. I can respect that. Maybe you just need to come up to me after church and say, can I talk to you? Or maybe you need to talk to one of our deacons or one of our staff members about your relationship with the Lord. Whatever it is, don't believe the lie that this man did, that you have plenty of time to deal with that later on. Do business with God today.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. God, Father, we pray that you would help us to be people that are rich towards you and not people that are marked by greed and discontentment. So, Father, may you wash over us with the gospel. God, may you change our hearts today to be more like Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song. Respond as the Lord leads you.